Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. everybody welcome to the podcast goes to this week we're talking about bound for glory film from 1976 i'm bob klein and i've got a new co-host his name is doug doug take it away hey uh, hey guys good to be on the show see this is what happens when you give me all the power matt (laughs) i go i go unplanned i go off script and it just it all goes wrong uh, it's been going wrong since day one. Since yep. the shape of since I said cabinet in the water, it's been going <laughs> wrong. Since you asked me what is the shape of water, and I said if it's in a glass, it's round, and if it's in a <laughs> tank, it's usually square. <laughs> I think that was actually one of our stronger jokes. It might have started to go downhill after that. How are you, my friend? I am wonderful. I decided to eat my meal before recording. Oh, so that's why you were late? Matt, I'm always late. Just accept it. <laughs> I'm not going to accept it, man. I'm not going to accept it. So now we're on season two. We've made it through an awards season. Still a little hungover from all those after parties after the potty awards. I don't know about you, Matt. We really pottied hard. <laughs> way to bring New England into this. <laughs> so uh, that's funny you should say that because... At work today, I, we have this clerk, um, and uh, she let's just say she, I don't think that she's gotten out very much in her 20 years of life. Uh, so um, I told her that I was from New England, and she was a little bit too enthusiastic for finding out someone's from New England. It didn't take me long to realize that she thought New England was part of England, I said, no, New England is not part of the United Kingdom. It's actually part of America. And so she's very disappointed. And she said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you call it England if it's in America? This is an actual conversation that was had at, in, in a place of business. You New Englanders <laughs> think you're important, but you're not. And no one knows that you exist. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. So it, it led into it, it devolved into everyone in the office printing out maps and trying to fill in the 50 United States. Turns out there are some states that I don't actually know. Do you think that you could name all 50 states? Yeah, we got uh, Arkansas, Alabama, Ohio. (laughs) You want me to name them all right now? (laughs) If you wanted to, I don't think you could. Of course I could. Yeah, I know all 50 states. Have I been to all of them? No. I've actually been to more countries than I've been to states. Embarrassing. I, I'm gonna need to know a little bit more about that. So, how many countries have you been to? I think I'm up to 15 right now, but I've only been to 14 states. That's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I want to see. I want to see more of the country. Maybe I should journey the countryside, singing folk music like Woody Guthrie in the film Bound for Glory. Nice. Yeah, he's from Oklahoma, which is one of the states that I could not place on a map. So <laughs> that's above a good Texas, set. you dumb dumb. Yeah, well, I know that now, but I didn't know that before I printed out the map and had my boss grade the paper like I was an elementary school student. Wow, you had a fun day today. It's rap mode, baby. Oh, speaking... <laughs> I see how it is. It's just always busy where I am. But I uh, I actually had a traditional New England meal uh, for dinner today before the podcast. Clam chowder? Boston Market. Oh, my God. <laughs> You know they fly those chickens in from Boston? If that's true, then I then kudos, but I don't think they make chickens in Boston. <laughs> I'm sort of... <laughs> it's so funny because there's so many points throughout the day where I'm just like, oh, I'm so exhausted with everyone else's stupidity. And then... <laughs> 
and then I'll do something so stupid or I won't know something and I'll just be like, ah, so exhausted with my own stupidity. <laughs> like, I can't really shit on everyone else if my brain is turning into mush. But uh, that is what's happening. And the more people listen to this show, the more their brains will also be turning into mush here on the podcast goes to. So last week's episode was a great success. Luckily, it was not an episode in which we discussed a movie, so we have no cleanup to do. But I did run the tape on the uh, how many potties were handed out, and Saving Private Ryan led the way with four. Ooh. And the king and I had three, but they were all negative. It was most napworthy, <laughs> most racist, and worst picture. So I'm not sure if that they should have a negative three potties, maybe. No, but potties are potties, dude. Potties are potties. So they tied Kiss of the Spider Woman and Shape of Water with three. And then, you know, everyone else kind of was scattered in there with one. Costco had one. <laughs> Superfan Chloe had one. I had one. Thank you. Um, you weren't nominated, I noticed. That was kind of awkward. But hey, there's always the, the second annual potties, which will be happening in nine weeks. As long as I don't win hardest worker, we're good because I don't plan on doing that hard work. So no. Although you are or in early in the early running to take the cake for late to every podcast recording. I feel like you were the one who used to be late all the time. I'm just trying to catch up, man. Oh, uh, okay. You're trying to snag that potty from me. All right. I see how it is. Well. That and Maybe. I just have a really busy life. <laughs> I lose track of time sometimes. Oh, busy Bob. They Bob, run out of chicken at Bob. the chicken store. <laughs> the, Boston, the Bostonian chickens. Yeah, I'm sure well, if those chickens are still alive, they'd go, have it? That's my impression of you. <laughs> that's No, that's not accurate. So maybe Bound for Glory will be potty bound in a couple of months. The uh, the story of Woody Guthrie as played by David Carradine. This land Carradine. is your land. This land is my land. So yeah, Woody Guthrie was the man who wrote "This Land Is Your Land," and he uh, the the story is based on his autobiography. But even the autobiography is considered a partially fictionalized account of his life. So it's a partially fictionalized film based on a partially fictionalized autobiography. It's so, it's kind of confusing to me that you could fictionalize an autobiography. Isn't that just fiction? I guess he's just not a reliable source. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. I, I mean, I don't think an autobiography can ever truly be reliable. I don't even think an, an authorized biography can be reliable. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Do you know what that book was called, Matt? Bound for Glory. Damn it. I thought I had you. <laughs> <laughs> you thought that somehow the person who does all the research didn't know what the autobiography was called? <laughs> Damn. So David Carradine plays Woody Guthrie and Ronnie Cox plays Ozark, the radio guy. And for some reason, I kept thinking Ronnie Cox was Burt Reynolds because of his mustache and cowboy hat. <laughs> and somehow Randy Quaid was in this. <laughs> did you, did <laughs> somehow you Randy Quaid. A really yeah, young, I, serious, poor, farming Randy Quaid. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I still might have a career, Randy Quaid. It was interesting to see him play Luther Johnson, the hobo, uh, with the family. So the, the story takes place during the Dust Bowl era, and we open in Oklahoma, and very soon Woody Guthrie feels that he needs to migrate with his fellow Okies to California to chase, his, chase dreams of having a dollar to his name. So it sort of follows him as he hops some trains and meets some hobos and gets in touch with the people and hijacks. Nope, does not do any hijacking. <laughs> Hitchhikes his way to the California coast where he finds more of the same, a lot of homeless people. Eventually he gets a job at a radio, joins up with Ozark, the radio personality, and together they rule the airwaves and try to get worker field workers to unionize. That is basically the plot of the, the, the general plot of the movie. There's some subplots and other things going on. But what were your initial thoughts of the movie? I thought it was a, a solid film. It was an ex one of those experiential, like not a lot going on, but just, you know, I really got a feel for the time, the, the Dust Bowl, the migrations, how tough it was for everyone. Um, you meet a lot of, you know, different people along the way. I thought it was beautifully shot. 
It was a solid film. It was kind of a snoozer, but... Yeah, I read a review by Roger Ebert, and he had a similar uh, take on the movie, which was that it was... It, it perfectly encapsulated the Dust Bowl era in the set decoration, the costume design, the overall feeling of the movie, but it but it was paced so slow that you didn't necessarily get into the story as much as maybe if it had been spiced up a little bit. It was almost like they sacrificed that for the tone. Yeah, and I, I had no concept for time in this at all. Like when he when he just decides to leave his family and just leave a note <laughs> and disappear. And then like way later in the film, his family shows up again. The kids kind of seem like the same age, but I felt like it's been 10 years already. Yeah, so he leaves his family, leaves a note saying he's going to California, which is a terrible way to leave a family. Do not recommend. And when the family finally arrives, because he's made a career for himself uh, as a radio personality, Ozark says, hey, come on down, let's let's celebrate. And he's like, oh, I haven't seen my family in months. So I feel like it hasn't been that long. I feel like it was only a matter of a couple weeks yeah, or a month or two. That's what I got after they showed up, but I felt like until that point, it was a long-ass time. I just it was it was hard for me to grasp like how much time has passed because it was so slow and there's so many like cross dissolves and slow moving shots and like not a lot happening that you just I don't know how long it took. What did you think about the cross dissolves? Because I think that that was the only transition that they used. What what were you expecting? Like star wipes and <laughs> shit? Like normally I mean, there aren't any transitions. You just cut. You just cut to the next scene. <laughs> I mean they they cut sometimes. Did they? I missed I must have missed it. Everything seemed like a cross dissolve for me. There there were a lot, but they were they were with like scenic shots and it they show the passing of time. That's the point of a cross dissolve. And mm-hmm. I think that was the point. Because he was traveling across, you know, the country. He's traveling from Oklahoma or Texas to California. And a lot of it was on foot. So, you know, he's hitchhiking and he's waiting. So I just I felt like the cross dissolves made sense there. Yeah, but then they continued even after that. There'd be a short scene of, you know, thirty to sixty seconds of a scene, and then there would be another cross dissolve. The cross dissolves lasted five seconds, so it was almost like they were taking up a majority of the screen time at that point i would say they highlighted all the clips and just pressed input dissolve but i'm pretty sure that's not how that works <laughs> <laughs> maybe this was the 1976 was the year that apple was founded by uh jobs and uh, the other guy who's the wozniak. wozniak yeah so maybe maybe the first thing they rolled out was imovie <laughs> iMovie. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is really cool. All you have to do is push this button and it'll cross dissolve. It's just going crazy like a high schooler who got his hands on what was the one on Windows? I don't know, movie? but I uh, Windows Movie Maker, is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes. I used to put in uh Duel of the Fates and just cross dissolve the fuck out of all my <laughs> video home videos with me and my friends. I was more of a 3D cube spin kind of guy. Oh, yeah, because your movies are a little more wonky. Mine were just like drama. No, I was going for special effects. Oh. Everything turned into a cube and it spins. Amazing. I'm surprised that I was was half expecting you to to not like this movie. Why? So I'm a little disappointed. Well, I don't know, because it was was kind of slow. And I just. What are you trying to say, Matt? I don't know. What are you trying to say? I didn't think no. it hold your attention. Are you saying that I don't pay attention? I, you don't pay attention to me, so I, my assumption is that in other aspects of life, you're gazing off at the window right now. What's up? <laughs> what did you see? A, a, a piece of fried chicken blowing in the wind? <laughs> I start to imagine things when uh, my co-host goes off on long tangents I can't pay attention to. <laughs> so this is a tough movie to discuss with the listeners because I think in general... Uh, most people probably have not seen this movie. It was impossible to access. You can't stream it on any sort of legal platform. So to just just imagine that it it, the, it was a very vivid, realistic depiction of the the Great Depression, which I think was this movie this movie's strength. What would you say its weakness was? The pacing? Yeah, it was slow, but I don't know if that's a weakness because how else would I have felt? everything that was going on and like the journey that he was taking i guess yeah it was, it was kind of slow and boring and at times i was not as interested as i could have been but like how would have they made this like not slow and boring i felt like that was this guy's life <laughs> he just yeah. kind of wandered around and ditched all his family like yeah he ditched he ditched his family and along the way he was sort of he was a womanizer he, he slept around on his wife 
And I, I, I liked his character because he was so flawed. He is painted as sort of a folk hero, hero of the common man, and he sees himself that way, but he was also not respectful to his family and didn't have any respect for his wife. I liked that there was that dynamic, that beneath that's the surface of a guy who was fighting for justice, he still had his own problems. It was it was tough though because at first it kind of seemed like oh he's you know he's leaving to make some money to send to his family and like help him out because there's no opportunity where he is but like he didn't discuss it with his family he didn't like plan anything out he just like up and left like randomly <laughs> it was like that's how the movie depicted it he's sitting on the porch just playing his guitar all of a sudden the music becomes like happy music like you know plot turning music and then he just runs across this you know writes his note runs across the street and just jumps in some dude's car how is that why is happy music playing right now like are you trying to make like oh we're so happy our character finally left his family behind like i I just like (laughs) i don't know It, it just didn't make that much sense to me for me it was very selfish like i don't want to be here. I just want to do my own thing. My family will slow me down. So I'm just going to go off and do my own thing. And that was the call to action moment for him. And I think it was the realization of his true character and true nature, which is that he was a migratory individual. But what was strange was when he finally had success, he didn't feel comfortable in it and still felt the need to run away from his wife. Now she has a house to, and a kitchen or refrigerator that works, and he still needed to go away and hop on a train. It, it's like he wasn't really searching for the success. He was searching to feel something, which was how he felt when he was among people who were poor and struggling. Yeah, and it wasn't like he set out to be a musician of any sort. He didn't bring his guitar with him on the journey. I thought that was an interesting choice. He even looks back at the guitar to... to to second guess his decision to leave it and then he does it makes me question exactly what the movie was trying to say about him yeah he brought his paintbrushes though because i remember in the train he's like oh i left my paintbrushes those are the best yeah. paintbrushes money could buy it's <laughs> like really yeah so i don't think the movie was about him become i don't think it was about his music really in that way the music was kind of secondary to like what he was trying to achieve is it is very strange what also felt secondary and forced was his politics I mean, he was known as sort of he was known as a political activist. He was uh, he was a known he had communist sympathies during World War II, and in this movie they focus a lot on the unionization of the workers, which, to, as far as I know, was a fictionalized dramatic event with him and Ozark going to the fields and trying to convince the workers to strike and then the owners chase them off and kick the shit out of them and they're very rebellious in that way. And I think that that was fiction. I don't think that that really happened because there was no Ozark in real life. And that sort of felt forced to me. I'll give you that. It was kind of strange. They were like really trying to like make a difference by going like from farm to farm, field to field to like use song to motivate the workers to go on strike (laughs) just yelling union union painting signs like sure he sang about that stuff and his songs became popular like wouldn't that have been enough that was the struggle with that's that's the that's what made ozark so angry and that's what made his wife mary so angry was he finally had money and he didn't want it because it took him away from the roots of what he had found as the American, the truth of the American people. And it was so frustrating everyone because Ozark's like, use the radio and use your money to do good. Don't throw it away. But I don't think that, I don't think he really wanted to do good. I think he wanted to struggle with everybody else. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really clear because the Ozark character was doing exactly what became Woody Guthrie's like main purpose in the film. But before that, he was just kind of wandering around. He didn't really do, he didn't like, he didn't try to unionize anyone or anything like that. And then when they have their big old bonfire sing-along party, all of a sudden he starts singing on the radio with Ozark. And then like, that was it. You know, now his sole purpose was to tell everyone to unionize and he couldn't sell himself out and make a couple extra bucks by just not singing about the things he wanted to sing about. It just, 
it just seems so like silly. Yeah, the radio didn't want him to sing about anything that would anger the sponsors. And it pissed him off so much, at one point he goes into a closet and starts breaking everything. He had a little rage to him as well. And then there's this, my favorite scene was when he's arguing with his wife towards the end. She ultimately leaves him. And she's sort of like, well, you're going to help all these other people. What about me? What am I supposed to do? I'm not just going to sit here. And while you wander around whenever you want, I thought that was, I thought she, that acting in that scene was incredible. Yeah, she had, like, tears all over her face, and it was like, I totally agree with her, even though he's the main character. It's like, he just left, and for all she knows, you know, how long did it take before she heard from him? For all she knows, like, he's never coming back, you know, who knows where he went. She just has to fend for herself and, you know, all the kids that he had. I think he had three kids or something like that. And then finally, like, she gets brought back into the picture, and, you know... It's like, oh, great, I have money now, I can support you guys, here's a house, you know, great, we can get back together and make things, you know, make things work again. And then he just throws that all the way, like, you know, I'd be crazy pissed too, like, you know, she didn't remarry or anything like that, like. <laughs> yeah, they, in real life, they, Woody married three times and had eight kids, and he was married to Mary from 1933 to 1943, in actuality, I think when he was 19, he married her. And he did work on a radio station, and he was he gained, garnered his fame by playing what they called hillbilly music. <laughs> he also wrote for a communist newspaper and befriended John Steinbeck. Some interesting tidbits in there that I almost feel like would have made the movie a little bit more interesting had they gone that route. Maybe done a Forrest Gump-style thing with John Steinbeck and a couple other celebrities from that era. That would have been interesting. But maybe then the movie becomes more about something else. I mean, maybe it becomes more about trying to entertain than it does about capturing the essence of a time period, which ultimately was what the movie seemed to do successfully. Yeah, especially with that uh, that dust bowl, the dust storm scene in the beginning. Or oh, I shouldn't yeah. say the beginning. It was probably like 30 minutes in. I don't think he even left for the first 45 minutes of the film. It was just like witnessing the day-to-day struggles in wherever texas they were yeah it was so authentic though the the neighborhood they were in just covered in dust scattered houses but that giant storm that wide shot of like the storm creeping in it was like oh Oh, that dust storm is menacing oh yeah yeah and i thought that they did a great job with the trucks all the old trucks piled with gross looking furniture all dusty and just everyone packing up their whole lives and the furniture is stacked on the roof and in the truck beds and all that that was awesome yeah definitely so matt we made it through the first part of the dust storm the migration it's time to pick our movie decade for next week season two coming at you Season two coming at you. We had a movie from the 1970s that took place in the 1930s. Will we have a 1930s movie this week? Will this be our first feature of that decade? What do you think? I hope so. Well, it, <laughs> yep, it is. It's the 1930s. I shit you not. Wait, really? Good for us. Oh, yeah. shit. Maybe it'll be a 1930s movie about the 1970s. Ooh, what? what'll be interesting is if it takes it's a What'll be interesting what? is <laughs> go, go on, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're gonna go ahead and take a quick break and no. Um is if it's about the Great Depression, we get to see how they address it in the thirties compared to how fifty years later it was addressed in seventy six. That'd be cool kinda cool. Stop call. Alright, we'll take a quick break and we will come right back. got no home i'm just a roaming round just a wandering worker i go from town to town and the police make it hard wherever i may go and i ain't got no home in this world anymore and we're back here on the podcast goes to talking about 1976's bound for glory almost said bridge of spies for some reason <laughs> close so, 
So we got some fan feedback last week, which was one of the highlights of our award show. And people really love What Are You Watching? So, Bob, what are you watching? Well, Matt, I wish I was watching the new Deadpool movie, but I didn't get a chance to see it yet. (laughs) And now you have Solo. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Now you have Solo riding on the ass of Deadpool 2. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that one. Not a huge Star Wars person. Just... I was not a huge Star Wars person. I'm a Trekkie, as everyone knows. Which little fun fact, jumping ahead, the costume designer for this movie was the costume designer for the entire run of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Little fun fact. That is a fun fact. And Matt, what are you watching? Well, Bob, I also didn't have a chance to see Deadpool two. I haven't really had a chance to watch much of anything. However, I did get some good suggestions today at work. We, <laughs> I know it sounds so like basically we don't work. neither of us have had time to watch anything since the last yeah. one. Yeah, I know it sounds like we don't work, but there was a heated argument yesterday because someone tried to say Get Out was best picture worthy over every other movie nominated. Turned into a really heated debate. Lasted about half the day. And it spawned today's debate, which was what are the five, what are your five favorite, not five best, five favorite movies of the last decade? And there were some interesting choices. District 9 made the list as a top five. Yeah, I thought that was a little, I wouldn't even say it's my top five favorite science fiction movie since 2008. I don't even put that up as like a good movie. I thought it was an okay movie. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Not like a movie that would make any list of any sort. Kubo and the Two Strings made it. I mean, that was impressive, like, stop-motion work. Like, it took a long time to make, but I didn't think it was, like, incredible. The Witch. Have you seen that one? No. Apparently, it's a really good horror movie. Wait, um, which one is that? It's... it's <laughs> I joke oh. a little, ha, 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 ha. Or, oh, as man. I should say, <laughs> so do you want to hear what i submitted as my top five i do i really do Pre- prepare to judge I, oh. I was prepared to be judged. oh another one that made the list was prisoners which is a really good hugh jackman movie uh, i haven't seen that one either uh hugh jackman and jake gyllenhaal bubble really boy and wolverine by uh richard deakins was the cinematographer and i thought that Roger that was the deakins? one that should have what I say, Richard? Yeah. You and <laughs> Richard, Richard Dawkins? Dawkins. <laughs> I got him on the brain, man. I, I recommended God Delusion to someone, and they're reading it and, and talking to me about it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. That's a great that. book. I So I, I only read nonfiction. I don't read fiction. I, I, I don't, I'd rather just watch it. That's why I like movies so much. But yeah, I, I, I read a lot of Richard Dawkins and God Delusion. Great book. Highly recommend. Yeah. I think I'm going to read Selfish Gene next. Have you read that one? Yeah. So Selfish Gene is great, but it really goes in depth. Like, it's a real, like, kind of like a thesis. It's from the 80s. It's, like, Mm -hmm. what he became famous for. Greatest show on Earth. It came out in 2006, I think. But he, like, if you read this one, he goes in depth and explains evolution, like, perfectly. Or as he says, evolution. Yeah, if you read this first, I highly recommend, like, you'll understand Selfish Gene a lot more. They're both about evolution evolution right so the gene is what more biological in-depth chemical stuff so selfish yeah so selfish gene he talks about like profound research on like specific aspects of like evolution he takes it a step further where in this book he kind of just explains it um like the whole thing so if you have the context and you know exactly where you know even though he wrote this years later that's mm-hmm. what I would recommend. But don't don't listen to me. Just read Selfish Gene. Selfish. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, so my... Anyway, so Richard that, Dawkins. So my... Go on with your list. <laughs> <laughs> now we have to talk about Richard Dawkins every week on the show. Yeah, until he listens. I was trying to think of some of the other movies um, that made the list. So, oh, uh, Call Me By Your Name made the list. Uh, Straight Outta Compton made the list. Some interesting Straight Outta Compton. Crazy mother named Ice Cube from a game called... <laughs> Uh, okay, my top five were The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick. Of course. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Whoa, interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> Inside of you. Inside of you. Uh, her. Wow. And The Great Beauty, which is an Italian Yeah, I have no idea what the hell that is. <laughs> from a few years ago. 
That's an interesting pretty, list, Matt. I, pretty pretentious, but... Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Armageddon wasn't in the last 10 years, so I couldn't include that on the list. But Beasts of the Southern Wild was my honorary mention. That's fair. I mean... <laughs> None of those make it to my top five, but like that's a that's an interesting list you got there, Matt. Very yeah, interesting so may, list. Maybe for next week's show, you can come up with your top five. Yeah, it's gonna take last ten years, five films. Took a little work. Yeah, so just all the movies we talked about on this podcast. <laughs> Down for Glory? Nope, that wasn't ten years ago. God damn. So speaking of Bound for Glory, we're now Sorry bound for the. <laughs> 49th Academy Awards, which were held on March 28th of 1977, and our movie, Bound for Glory, was nominated for six Academy Awards that year, winning two. Do you have the list, Bob? I know it won cinematography and adapted music. Is that the way to say it? Yeah, it was some best music score or adapted score it was like best music song or adapted song score there was it was almost like there was an extra word in there that didn't belong but that's what it's called yeah i found that one interesting because i watched the speeches the acceptance speeches and the dude is like apparently he won two years in a row for that category he's like i also make original music too He like keeps winning these like adapted music awards and he's like, I make my own music, goddammit. Cool. And then Haskell uh Haskell Wexler, didn't he win the year before too? I think he won for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the year before. Yep. So he was the cinematographer. Powerhouse uh lineup here for these the this crew. This is a pretty stacked crew. Yeah, it it really came together. And then the other nominees uh were for Editing, costume design, best picture, of course, and set design. Yep, and best adapted screenplay was the last one. Kind of shocked it didn't get a set design nomination. Oh, it didn't get a set design. Oh, it was adapted screenplay. No. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because I, when I watched this film, there was only like one or two scenes where I felt like I was on the set, but the majority, I just really felt like I was out on the open road of America, from California to the New York Highlands. <laughs> whatever the <laughs> I think it's the, island yeah that makes more sense there are no highlands but there are islands in new york well i mean there are mountains are there well i guess in new york state yeah actually go ahead why don't you give us why don't you sing us the song right now sing what? us with it don't look up the lyrics just go ahead and sing it what song this land is your land this land is your land this land is my land everybody now nope just you from california <laughs> <laughs> what are we do- what are we doing what are we trying to accomplish here Matt? <laughs> i'm just trying to i'm just just get to the next just get to the next bar that's all for what happens after new york island i sang this in school at some point didn't i god damn yeah i, I have no idea i don't think i do either yeah now we gotta look it up <laughs> damn it fuck <laughs> all right well while you do that i'll tell everybody a little bit more about uh the real life woody guthrie he died of Huntington's disease in 1967, and That several... is a shitty way to go. You know the iconic person that also had Huntington's disease? Uh, uh, Hunt- Huntington. Dr. Gregory House. Well, that's a fictional character, but House, yeah. <laughs> that's why he's such a dick, because he's always in pain, because he had Huntington's. Awful, awful disease. Damn. Well, several sources on the interweb, which I do not trust tried to blame Huntington's disease on his uh, indecent behavior as his, as his life and career progressed. He was known for sending dirty letters to his mistresses and also to his fans, sometimes without request. And at one point, he was charged for indecency but settled. Interesting that they touched on that in the movie, which added a nice texture to his character. It, just enough for him to be a flawed hero, but not enough for him to be an anti-hero. I thought that that was tastefully done, probably worthy of an adapted screenplay in my mind. You know what I have to say about that, Matt? What do you have to say, Bob? From the Redwood Forest <laughs> to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. This is going to launch my singing career, Matt. <laughs> yeah, this podcast that'd be just my luck that you get fucking discovered as a singer songwriter <laughs> from this podcast and i just i'm just like 
still the loser doing the podcast. I'm going to be the next Ariana Grande. Bob Grande. Also, that also happens to be the name of the meal combo that he orders at Boston Market. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So perhaps most memorable is the advent and introduction of the Steadicam in this movie. They're the very first shot. You can watch this online for those of you who are cinephiles. I'm sure it doesn't appeal to the average What's a cinephile? Is that like a movie pedophile? Yeah, like a movie buff, like someone who's like oh. into this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you can Google first ever Steadicam scene. It is a scene in this movie, and it's uh, it was an incredible shot. Did you know which shot it was? Nope. Okay. Well, I will tell you. It is the shot where he is in the hobo camp walking through the crowd of people who are walking in the opposite direction of him. So how they accomplished this is they had the camera on a fully elevated platform crane. It jibbed down to the ground and the Steadicam operator, Garrett Brown, who is also the inventor, unhooked himself. He had the Steadicam rigged to his body and then from the crane he walked through the crowd. It's a two and a half minute shot. And it was the first time you saw anything like this in film. So anytime you see some smooth motion like that, it is most likely the use of the Steadicam. It's a rig that you strap to your body and it holds the camera and you can operate it. And it basically eliminates all the jitter that comes with the handheld operation. Yeah, yeah, basically. You wear a vest and it has a giant arm that hooks up to the camera, gyroscopic arm. You see these if you watch like sporting events or anything like that. You'll see the dude in the big vest with a big arm thing walking around with a camera or like late night television show or something. So, yeah. So before before this it was invented by Garrett Brown, 1975. Before this, you either had to set up a dolly, which involved laying down tracks and putting the camera on a giant dolly and wheeling it. Or you had to deal with the handheld jittery effect that you get with you know, today's found footage movies or documentaries. And this is just, this is just revolutionary. Did you know that they used it for Return of the Jedi? It was the most famous uh, use of Garrett Brown as a Steadicam operator. He walked through the woods, filming the woods at one frame per second, and then used it as the plate for the speeder bike chase in Return of the Jedi and played it at 24 frames. That is brilliant <laughs> one frame a second i love it yeah isn't that wild that that is pretty awesome i shoot a lot of my camera goes to two frames a second and i shoot a lot of that I, it looks really funny <laughs> everything just moves so fast what's but, an example of you of you using it i mean you could use it for like a, a kind of a video version of a time lapse if you wanted to i'll do like kind of fake time lapses sometimes So basically I'll set up the camera stationary and I'll go like two frames a second or something like that, or maybe 12, depending on what I'm doing. And instead of actually waiting for all that time for something to time lapse, I'll just have the action go quicker in real life. So like, for instance, shooting a time lapse of a guy writing a song in in like a musical piece I did, the dude is like running around the house, like playing the guitar really fast and like writing song lyrics really fast and throwing them away really fast and like running around. And then when you play it back, it looks like he was there for like, you know, a day. <laughs> we did it in like a minute. But that's that's cool. I, I really like that. I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. And they did win cinematography. I think it was, you know, well deserved. Not only the steady cam work, although I'm sure that really helped them. Uh, although I'm sure I missed a lot of it because it's so prevalent now that like, it's just normal to me. (laughs) Right. Like it would have been amazing to watch this film back then and really appreciate, you know, the things they achieved in this film, but just, just even the stationary shots, just everything, like the lighting was so beautiful, him traveling, like the silhouette shots of him on the trains. Yeah. Some really long shots in there too. A lot of long shots. Never was I, you know, I was kind of bored by the story, but like I was never like, okay, you're holding the shot a little too long, buddy. Like, let's let's move. Which is why yeah. I was also probably nominated for editing. I think the average, isn't the average shot in a movie five to seven seconds? Well, if that's the case, I've been doing it all wrong this whole time. <laughs> it's, it's something like that, where there's a cut every, there's a cut every five seconds or something like that. And they, they, held, they held shots for several minutes, multiple times. The shot of the, him and his hobo friend on the 
train was one that's that stuck out to me at first you couldn't quite tell if it was i assumed they were shooting on top of an actual train but i couldn't be sure and then they went under a bridge and it it, it, it almost felt 3d when that they went under that bridge yeah and it got completely dark and then it just got bright again yeah that was really that was, cool that was awesome so the, yeah a lot of a lot of great and and that's that's the thing with these big technical achievements is they become so commonplace that you forget at one point in time they weren't possible and you take them for granted but that's what ha- um, Haskell Wexler and our friend Garrett Brown were able to do both of them earned uh, Oscar wins Garrett got his a couple of years later as an honorary technical achievement but uh, pretty pretty cool pretty cool so if you if you're interested you can see that shot online you're not interested you probably have turned this episode off by now i know i have so speaking of a turnoff how about david carradine do you know how he died uh yeah it says here in imdb accidental asphyxiation in like thailand or something yeah he he, he died while masturbating he was choking himself while masturbating and accidentally died so kill bill was killed by bill Yeah, it's this Bangkok, Thailand. He was 72 <laughs> years old when it happened. Man, that's a way to go. I mean, he lived a full, pretty much a full life and then just... Yeah, it was still crazy, though, like, seeing this guy, like, singing folk songs and running around the country. And all I'm thinking is, like, he's just going to grow up to be Bill. <laughs> Son <laughs> of a bitch. <laughs> I don't remember him in anything other than Kill Bill, to be quite honest. No, neither do I. And then this guy, Ronnie Cox, was also in RoboCop, Deliverance, Beverly Hills Cop. A lot of cops. And you know what was weird is um, this guy, Hal Ashby. What were you saying? This guy, Hal Ashby, he was in a couple movies that all that that were all sort of titled Coming Home, The Russians Are Coming, Being There, and this one, Bound for Glory. Just interesting that he's uh, the, the director of mobility. And even more interesting, he was in Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2. Who, Hal Ashby? And he played Bill in both those movies. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Haskell Wexler was the guy who took over cinematography on Days of Heaven, but then was not, uh, he didn't win the award. It went to the original cinematographer, and that was a point of controversy because it's believed that the original cinematographer was going blind, and that's why he was replaced. Well, it's hard to be a blind cinematographer. <laughs> it is. So people are like, how come that guy got the award? Haskell did most of the work, but no one can say for sure. He just felt the cinematography. Yeah, exactly. He smelt it, <laughs> and he heard it. <laughs> uh, some other quick facts about the 49th Academy Awards Network was the 11th out of 15 films to receive nominations in all four acting categories... Yeah, they killed in the acting. Beatrice Strait won Best Supporting Actress for the shortest performance ever to win an Oscar, five minutes and two seconds. That's happened a few times since, though. Not at five minutes and two seconds. What about Mahershala Ali? You re- he was in for he was in there at least for 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. You think so? Yeah. And there's someone else that had a really short one, too. Well, Matt, I think it's time to narrow down to our Oscar year. What nice. have you got for us, buddy? Well, we're in the 1930s, and we're going to 1937. That's probably top 10 favorite 1930s year for me, Matt. What about you? Yeah, it's definitely top 10. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say top 5, but it, it, might, be, it might make the cut. My top 5 are 1930, 1931, 1932... 1933 and 1934. Alright, well, we'll take a quick break and we will come right back. This land is your land and this land is my land From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me I went a-walking that ribbon of highway And I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me Welcome back to The Podcast Goes To. This week we're talking about Bound for Glory. 
Another interesting fact about Woody Guthrie is when he traveled to New York, which we don't really see in the film, you know who his landlord was? J.D. Salinger. Close. Trump's dad. (laughs) (laughs) What? And he even went as... He hated Trump's dad, his landlord, so much that he wrote a song about him. (laughs) What was it called? (laughs) Oh, man. It was... It was called Old Man Trump, or something like that. And <laughs> nah. he just he he wrote the song about him, like how much he hated him for being a racist because everyone in the building he lived in was white. Ah, <laughs> including him, but that little fact yeah. gets left out. Yeah, I just I just found that really interesting <laughs> because I'm I'm searching like some Woody Guthrie stuff for the for this podcast, and Google immediately it goes to Woody Guthrie trump and i was like why does trump pop up like this dude died like a while ago he died like 10 years before this movie came out but yeah he wrote a song called old man trump (laughs) and I'll, i'll read you some of the lyrics i suppose that old man trump knows just how much racial hate he stirred up in the blood pot of humans hearts when he drawed that colored line here at his Beach Haven family project. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that's the opening to the song. <laughs> <laughs> Beach really Haven is Trump's tower where no black folks come to roam. No, no, old man Trump. Old Beach Haven ain't my home. Shout out to our president's late father. <laughs> Funny how a racist somehow gave birth to such a progressive individual (laughs) i couldn't agree less (laughs) (laughs) well while you were singing old man trump i was trying to find the answer to our question of who who won for the least amount of screen time i think i know who we were thinking of was it anne hathaway in les mis she was only on screen for 15 minutes oh maybe that was the one so i guess five minutes is a real big deal yeah, Judy Dent, oh, Viola Davis and Doubt won for eight minutes of screen time. Whoa. That's all you need with Viola. Just, she's so good. She's yeah. a Rhode Islander, by the way. Just saying. Is she, though? Like, I feel like Rhode Island clings to that a little harder than they should. I mean, she was born and raised there, went to high school there. I guess that counts. Yeah, so I guess if 20 years of your life counts, then yeah, she was, she's a Rhode Islander. But who am I to say, for sure. You damn Rhode <laughs> Islanders. <laughs> You damn Englanders. Why don't you go back to why don't you get back on your boat and go back to New England? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that uh I think that final thoughts on the movie, really tough to talk about a depression era movie. Good thing that we have a depression era movie next week as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, ain't that exciting, Matt. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think overall, if you have a chance to see this movie and you can put up with the the slow pace of a movie, then this is something worth checking out simply for the cinematography and the set design. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to watch a film about a guy who just ditches his family for no apparent reason and walks around and just as he gains success, he kind of just throws it away because why make life easy? Brilliant! (laughs) Well, I have a feeling some of these titles lead me to believe that we might be in for something special next week. Would you like to hear the nominees for next week's show? No. And the nominees are The Awful Truth, The Life of Emile Zola. What? Captain's Courageous, Dead End, The Good Earth, In Old (laughs) Chicago, Lost Horizon, (laughs) Stage door. How many are there? What the hell? There's so many, dude. I guess in the 30s, they were just like, let's just let everybody in. How'd they afford to make that many movies in 1930? (laughs) They're still going. A Star is Born. And the one I hope we get, 100 Men and a Girl. (laughs) That's definitely a porno. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, the winner that year was The Life of Emile Zola. By Warner Brothers. A classic, clearly. Yeah, I have heard of none of these movies, so... <laughs> I mean, I saw something that had the title 100 Men and One Woman, but I don't think it was this movie. I've heard of 100 Men and a Baby. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> All right, next week the podcast goes to a blank space because 
100 men and a girl. No. <laughs> I swear to God, dude. Wow. You don't believe me, do you? No. You think I rigged the system? Yep. I didn't. I did not rig the system. Well, you heard it here. Matt's full of shit, and we're watching 100 men and a baby. <laughs> this kind of sucks that I hyped it up so much and then we gutted it. It totally sounds like we rigged the system. This is the most entertaining part of our podcast this week, so <laughs> shout out to that. These, How many movies were nominated? Was this 10? 10. Wow. I or bet some... these were the only 10 movies that were made that year. Right? Was uh, it in the middle of the Depression? How they afford to make all these movies? Uh, actually, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was also made that year. So that, there goes that theory. Well, that's a huge snub. What the fuck? Yeah, so we'll talk about that next week as well as Let's just talk about it now. And a girl. The Leonard St- Stokowski movie. American musical comedy film directed by none other than Henry Coster. Is that supposed to mean something to me? I don't know how to tell you this, Bob, but we've already seen a Henry Coster film. No. It's The Bishop's Wife. No! <laughs> no! <laughs> or, as, so or as Thor would say in Thor 2, The Dark World, No! So tune in next week for our second Henry Coster film in three weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out on this one. Who wants who wants to be a guest host? <laughs> Why do the film gods do this to us, Bob? Why? Because we talk about Richard Dawkins too much. And he's always <laughs> yeah. saying there is no God. <laughs> yeah. All right, Bob. Well, I'll see you next week on another episode of the podcast. Goes to. Thank you very much. 